Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of October 23rd, 2022, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, in recent weeks here on the Counter Vortex podcast, uh, we've been going from the hyper-local, looking at neighborhood politics here on Manhattan's Lower East Side, to the global, looking at Ukraine and the crisis in Europe. And now we are going to pull back further to a galactic view. Yes, really. There's been a lot of space stuff in the news recently. I was very pleased that the launch of the Artemis One lunar flight was postponed due to technical difficulties, although it is now scheduled for next month. Far more alarming was the unprovoked imperialist attack on the asteroid Dimorphos by NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART. According to media reports, quote, this marks humanity's first time purposely changing the motion of a celestial object and the first full-scale demonstration of asteroid deflection technology, unquote. This is ostensibly being developed as a means to deflect asteroids that might be on a collision course with Earth. But my fear is that playing asteroid billiards like this could upset the gravitational equilibrium up there between Mars and Jupiter and paradoxically bring about an asteroid hurtling into the Earth and wiping us out. Now, to the best of our knowledge, the Earth being struck with a giant meteor or asteroid to devastating effect has only happened twice before in planetary history. The Triassic-Jurassic extinction event of some 200 million years ago and the Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction event of 65 million years ago. So this is what people are concerned with and not the looming doom from the very technology being used to swap the asteroids around. The irony is that it is the same nuclear military-industrial complex which is behind all of this space adventurism that is driving us toward apocalypse on Earth. This isn't saving humanity. It is compelling humanity's doom. And even many progressives just don't get it. But I guess I should be grateful that they didn't actually nuke the damn asteroid, which was the original plan. The option of developing a special nuclear missile force to blast errant asteroids out of the heavens was put forth at a high-level closed-doors meeting at Los Alamos National Laboratory in January 1992, overseen by the legendary father of the H-bomb, Edward Teller. The meeting was held on Teller's 84th birthday, according to one account, as calls for more and bigger bombs continued. Lowell Wood, 
Teller's protege at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, could not contain his excitement and shouted from the back of the auditorium, Nukes forever! This was all written up by the Oregonian on March 29th, 1992. I'm not making it up. So I still smell an imperialist and militarist rat in all of this supposedly apolitical space adventurism. So now, yes, I'm going to propound on my anti-space expansionism position in this rant. I refuse to use the loaded word exploration. But I should start by acknowledging a couple of holes or flexible points in my own dogma, just to get it out of the way. First, I reluctantly acknowledge legitimate uses of space technology in Earth science, monitoring atmospheric changes, etc. But I also feel the need to point out the contradiction that ultimately it is the same industrial system that makes space technology possible that is compelling the need for such monitoring by spewing carbon into the atmosphere, etc. Let's keep in mind that um, satellites are also scanning the Earth's substrate for mineral and oil deposits for corporate exploitation, sending us yet further into destruction of the biosphere. Uh, And secondly, I will note that um, the first Native American woman astronaut just returned from a five-month mission on the International Space Station, Nicole Mann, a member of the Wailaki people of the Round Valley Indian tribes of Northern California. I actually visited their reservation in Mendocino County for um, journalistic purposes back in the 1990s. I should note that the um, first Native American astronaut was John Bennett Harrington of the Chickasaw Nation in Oklahoma, who in 1996 helped build the International Space Station. So um, it's hard not to take some satisfaction in this and to recognize that it represents cultural progress. But I must confess, again, that there is a part of me that feels that Nicole Mann is being exploited to put a multicultural face on space imperialism. And I'll also point out that while John Bennett Harrington took the um, space shuttle to the International Space Station back in the day, Nicole Mann took the commercial SpaceX vehicle produced by the extremely problematic Elon Musk and representing the incipient privatization of the space program, which is ominous. I'll also note one last little bit of space news. This from the website space.com, October 17th. Russian cosmonaut who commanded space station struck pedestrian with car. (laughs) Concerning Russian cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev, who uh, had just landed from a six-month stay on the International Space Station, and ran down a pedestrian with his car in Moscow, causing serious injuries. And this uh, just says, to me, sums up everything about the current world situation and ties together all of my recent obsessions. Space technology and automotive terror ultimately being part of the same Earth-destroying Leviathan. And there's a perfect poetry that... um, This uh, reckless 
cosmonaut is Russian, given the horrific uses to which Moscow is currently putting missile technology in Ukraine. All right, uh, a few books to go over. Okay, this first one is relatively new and extremely vindicating. It really sums up all my own thinking about the question of space expansionism. Only, the author does it for Oxford University Press and employs lots of charts and fancy graphics and the proper degree of academic jargon. Finally, amid the ubiquitous dogma of space boosterism, it is so refreshing to see someone within the halls of academe making a serious case for an unabashed space skepticism. The book is Dark Skies, Space Expansionism, Planetary Geopolitics, and the Ends, plural, of Humanity, by Daniel Dudney, Oxford University Press 2020. I'm going to read a couple of selections from the text. As the four horsemen of the anthropogenic apocalypse and other perils, natural and human-made, have come into view the expectation that space can play a uniquely and decisively positive role in either fixing Earth problems or escaping from them has become an unquestioned article of faith, endlessly repeated by space advocates, as well as most analysts of catastrophic and existential threats. If all humanity's eggs are in the one vulnerable and fraying basket of the Earth, as widely proclaimed, then spreading human settlements into the cosmos seems a straightforward path to human survival. And if asteroids colliding with the Earth are a threat to civilization and the species, then a space program to detect and divert them becomes vitally necessary. The overwhelmingly dominant view is that space activities have an entirely positive role to play in addressing perils to human survival, in contrast to many technologies that promise both perils and benefits that must somehow be partly restrained. All right, that's a slight copy editing error. He said the opposite of what he meant. Of course, it's the perils, not the benefits, that must be partly restrained. <laughs> in contrast to many technologies that promise both benefits and perils, correcting his text, that must somehow be partly restrained, the question is not whether space efforts are desirable, but rather how soon they can be made feasible, despite the breadth and sophistication of their visionary thinking. Neither space expansionists nor analysts of catastrophes give much consideration to possible ways in which space activities might exacerbate or trigger existing threats or create new ones. In futurist thinking about technogenic threats, large-scale space expansionism enjoys a special status, a space exceptionalism which in turn is supported by and supports a space exemptionalism, a free pass from a serious consideration of its possible downsides. Jumping forward a little bit, the asteroid peril 
seems a simple and straightforward case for space activity, but it is actually quite vexed. These small celestial bodies, which swarm in vast numbers throughout the solar system and occasionally destructively collide with the Earth, <laughs> occasionally as in once every, you know, <laughs> several million years, <clears throat> can, with reasonable time and effort, very probably be detected and diverted. Because it is a matter of when, not whether, a collision will occur again, asteroids are the wild card in the space futures deck. Asteroids are also central to any large-scale development of space near the Earth, because they are the most readily accessible source of raw materials for building infrastructures in space. But once capabilities to move asteroids are brought into existence, how can we be confident that intentional bombardment, which some have proposed, will not open up an entirely new vector of catastrophic and existential threat? And what does the threat of intentional asteroid bombardment imply about the actual consequences of extensive solar colonization? If it is accompanied by war between different settled worlds. Curiously, space advocates have almost totally ignored the proposition of the astronomers Carl Sagan and Steve Ostro that the development of capabilities to deflect asteroids will increase the probability of an asteroid striking the Earth due to their potential employment as intentional weapons of destruction. A line of thinking that has profound implications for the desirability of the cosmic diaspora that space expansionists, including Sagan, so ardently support. End quote. I can't tell you how good it feels to read that. Okay, he then goes on to note the origins of the U.S. space program in the Nazi missile program, most significantly in the person of Werner von Braun, whose name has become attached to the notion of supposedly apolitical space exploration, but Dudney would apply the moniker of the von Braun paradigm to the militarization of space, such as was pursued by the Pentagon in its Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, program of the Reagan era. Associating von Braun's name with the overall project of near-space militarization is more appropriate because he also played a key role first in Germany and then in the United States in developing early rockets for long-range bombardment and was among the first to advocate establishing planet-wide military domination from space platforms equipped with nuclear weapons capable of striking anywhere on Earth on very short notice. Using von Braun's name to refer to civil rather than military space development has a propagandistic effect, whether intended or not, of evading some important and ghastly historical facts about the origins of the space age in Nazi Germany. The V-2s, that were the first rockets powerful enough to lift objects out of the Earth's atmosphere, were fabricated by a brutalized captive labor force composed of Russian prisoners of war and other groups targeted for extermination by Hitler's genocidal regime. 
In these labor camps, thousands died from subhuman conditions or summary execution by Hitler's SS squads. The V2 is unique in the history of war because more people perished making them than were killed by their use. Furthermore, after being snatched from Germany and relocated to the United States, V2 technology and the von Braun team played important roles in the development of the long-range rockets to lob nuclear weapons at distant targets. And he prominently called for nuclear-armed space stations to dominate the planet. In sum, employing von Braun's name as the label for the space militarization program is not only substantially justified by what he did and advocated, it also serves as a reminder of the fact that while von Braun and his team may have aimed for the stars, they hit London. Employing his name may help remind us that while space expansionists in the nuclear age aim for the stars, they might obliterate the Earth, and that whatever the intent of their deployers, widespread use of these weapons will be genocidal or even omnicidal. Using von Braun's name in this way also highlights where the rockets come down is not my department mentality so prevalent among space enthusiasts. It will also help the future remember that the first objects to pass beyond the Earth's atmosphere were built by humans designated as Untermenschen, subhumans, for the benefit of a self-styled Ubermenschen, master race. And von Braun stands as the outstanding exemplar of the seductions and dangers of the persisting space expansionist gambit of hitching their ambitions to ongoing military rivalries. End quote. Then he jumps forward to uh, briefly discuss the um, Star Wars program. While no weapons were deployed, some claim that the technological shadow of the future, cast by Reagan's SDI program, played a key role in ending the Cold War on terms favorable to the United States. China's and Russia's recent moves to expand space counterforce activities, combined with Trump's recent effort to create a space force and expand U.S. military space activities, are likely to further accelerate space weapon development. End quote. Okay, then later he turns to the seemingly more innocent notion of ostensibly apolitical and peaceful space expansionism, which he terms the Clark-Sagan paradigm for Arthur C. Clark and Carl Sagan. And uh, here, I believe, is actually his more important critique because it is less obvious and more fundamental. And here, uh, he draws a distinction between what he calls anti-space and astro-Luddite anti-technologism, <laughs> of which I plead guilty, and advocates instead for a so-called whole Earth security program in which space technology is employed less for expansionism than for securing life on Earth, both by monitoring the planet's life systems 
and for a potential asteroid diversion, which I am very skeptical about, especially the latter, and he's also expressed a skepticism about it. But in terms of the um, expansionist model of um, space colonization, he enumerates various potential blowback on humanity from even supposedly peaceful space expansionism. And one is hierarchy enablement from the text. Space expansionism is likely to produce hierarchies in several significant ways. Many space advocates view large-scale space expansionism as freedom insurance and anticipate that various forms of freedom and plurality deemed in jeopardy on Earth can be recovered and preserved in space. But anticipations of a freedom dividend from space expansion are largely illusory because large-scale space expansion into Earth orbital space is very likely to enable the erection of a highly hierarchical world government, either from one state military dominance of the entire planet or from the control of a major infrastructure for resources or energy. The further large-scale expansion of human activity into solar space is likely to facilitate the emergence of a highly hierarchical world government on island Earth that could then be prone to become totalitarian. Again, thank you. Okay, his next entry in the possible blowback on humanity from space expansion is a little um, wackier. What he calls alien generation, the notion that humanity could evolve in the very different conditions of other planets into new and potentially very advanced species who could then come back and threaten Earth. Okay, that's um, imaginative. And he calls these various possibilities collectively astrocide. From the text, astrocide, the extinction of humanity caused directly or indirectly by large-scale human space expansion, must join the list of threats to the survival of humanity that already includes cosmocide, humanity being destroyed by some cosmic force from without, like a giant meteor, terracide, humanity being destroyed by some upheaval within the Earth, such as massive volcanic eruptions, and other technogenic threats, like large-scale nuclear war. Astrocide is a form of technologically enabled species suicide. End quote. And again, thank you. He then goes on to discuss the so-called Fermi paradox, which, if you're not familiar with it, I'll just take the liberty of reading from Wikipedia. The Fermi paradox is the conflict between the lack of clear, obvious evidence for extraterrestrial life and various high estimates for their existence. Italian-American physicist Enrico Fermi's name is associated with the paradox because of a casual conversation in the summer of 1950 with fellow physicists, including Edward Teller. While walking to lunch, the men discussed the recent UFO reports and the possibility of faster-than-light travel. The conversation moved on to other topics until, during lunch, Fermi blurted out, but where is everybody? 
<laughs> and Dudney has a, uh, a very important answer to the Fermi paradox. Once again, from the text, the Fermi paradox asks, where is everybody? If intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe, why do we not see evidence for it? Preliminary searches for evidence of technological civilizations in this galaxy, while hardly exhaustive or conclusive, have produced the great silence. If such civilizations exist, we as yet see no evidence for them. This may be because they do not exist, at least not in this galaxy, and because we have not looked hard enough, or because they have advanced so far as to be effectively invisible to human observational techniques. But as awareness has grown over the many ways, both natural and anthropogenic, that humanity might be rendered extinct on this planet, thinkers on the intelligent life question have suggested that there is a series of great filters operating to winnow out life forms between the emergence of life on a planet and the expansion of intelligent life forms across the galaxy. These lines of reasoning assume that other intelligent species confront a set of existential threats roughly comparable to the ones humanity faces, and then assert that the great silence is explained by the operation of these great filters. In some, all other intelligent life forms eventually succumb to one or another peril and become extinct, thus answering the question of why we do not see evidence for them. Once ambitious space expansionism is itself accurately viewed as posing severe, catastrophic, and existential threats, Another explanation for the Fermi paradox suggests itself. The threats posed by ambitious space expansionism are sufficiently general in their logic that they can reasonably be expected to apply to any intelligent species that emerges anywhere. If this is the case and an intelligent species emerges and pursues ambitious space expansionism, it would significantly raise its chances of becoming extinct. If, as many space expansionists believe, it is inevitable that life forms inevitably expand, again, kind of a redundancy, and that intelligent life forms will inevitably expand into space, then space expansionism leading to alien astrocide itself becomes a great filter. If, on the other hand, intelligent life forms elsewhere on the threshold of becoming significantly spacefaring, are able, as we are, to anticipate the numerous perils stemming from this path, they might then decide, as we can and should, to relinquish large-scale space expansionism. If they demonstrate their intelligence in the face of this cluster of perils, they stay at home, thus rendering themselves effectively invisible to us. In short, if we are intelligent enough, as we surely are, at least in principle, to relinquish large-scale space expansion, other intelligent species can be expected to do so as well. The reason we do not see evidence for other intelligent species in the cosmos is that they either succumbed to the perils of expansion or intelligently eschewed this path. They have not come here because they are smart enough not to leave there. End quote. 
And, uh, you know, I'm really glad to know that um, other people have uh, arrived at this conclusion, which I thought that I had come to on my own, because <laughs> this is basically a more um, verbose variation on uh, what I have until now called the Weinberg theorem, in answer to the Fermi paradox, which is that the level of global resource exploitation necessary to sustain a space program on the scale such as could even aspire to space expansionism beyond the solar system, is not ecologically sustainable and will push the biosphere to the point of collapse well before any intelligent species could get to that point. I mean, we're just getting to the point of sending a few tentative probes beyond the confines of the solar system, and we've already pushed our biosphere to the brink of collapse. There is such an obvious, if paradoxical, unity in all of these ambitious space projects happening at the same time that in the African Sahel, there are now local wars over disappearing water resources. Check out the latest headlines from Chad and Cameroon. I wish this horrific situation was getting a fraction of the media coverage that all of this hubristic space bullshit gets. And I will add the addendum to the Weinberg theorem, which is that the same technological apparatus necessary for space expansionism also enables weapons of mass destruction on such a scale that it exponentially increases the likelihood that any species to get to that point will basically commit suicide in a planetary war, as we now seem to be on the very brink of. Thank you very much. Either way, Biosphere collapse through the normal functioning of the industrial system or through nuclear war is a manifestation of what I, taking a tip from E.P. Thompson, call the exterminationist mode of production that capitalism is now in. One way or the other, our technological system is propelling the apocalypse. So, a big thank you to uh, Daniel Dudney for restating the Weinberg theorem in terms where uh, it will win greater attention than my modest soapbox of counter-vortex. <laughs> All right, I guess it's no longer my theorem. I just thought it was in my own hubris. But uh, anyway, great book, Daniel Dudney, Dark Skies, Space Expansionism, Planetary Geopolitics, and the Ends of Humanity. Oxford 2020. Okay, let's turn our attention to another book, a very strange book with the very strange and unassuming title of I Want to Believe, and the more revealing subtitle of Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism by A.M. Gitlitz, Pluto Press, also in England, 2020. And there's a very uh, amusing cover image. You know the uh, the classic Marxist image with the profiles of the great theoretical patriarchs in succession, usually beginning with Marx, sometimes with Hegel, and then Marx, and then sometimes Engels, and always Lenin, and then either Trotsky, Stalin, or Mao, depending on which tendency is at work. Well, this one shows Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, and then a space alien. <laughs> A classic gray space alien. Very cute. 
And uh, this book concerns Juan Posadas, who was the great-granddaddy of Argentine Trotskyism, who eventually founded his own breakaway faction of the Trotskyist Fourth International, dubbed the Fourth International Posadist. And this really had some influence on the left in Latin America for a while. There were tendencies in the Guatemalan guerrilla movement of the 1960s that uh, were in the sway of Posadism, and then in the underground armed resistance that emerged in Argentina after the establishment of a military dictatorship in the 1970s. And there was even, for a while, a small Posadist following within revolutionary Cuba, although Fidel Castro ultimately had them all arrested. And there were two elements that made Posadism heretical, even for Trotskyism, which itself was heretical as far as Moscow and the Comintern were concerned. One was the belief that nuclear war could represent an opportunity for world revolution. Now, this was a briefly fashionable idea on the radical left in the 1960s. Such notions were mouthed by the Cuban leadership during the Missile Crisis, although they have fortunately since gone into abeyance. And the other was the even wackier notion that any extraterrestrial civilization that could advance to the point of interstellar travel must be socialist, and therefore alien contact and even alien conquest of the Earth should be welcomed as an opportunity for world revolution. Uh, this is all true. I'm not making any of this up. You can read the book. It's all footnoted and everything. Here's a quote from Posadas. We must appeal to the beings on other planets when they come here to intervene and collaborate with Earth's inhabitants in suppressing poverty. End quote. <clears throat> now, uh, you know, the title... I want to believe is very revealing because there is obviously a tremendous element of wishful thinking at work here, which is utterly at odds with the supposedly scientific basis of Marxism. And uh, these two positions of looking to the aliens and to nuclear war were part of uh, the same zeitgeist at the time. Here's another quote from the text. The peak of Posadas' influence overlapped with the most ardent period of the space race, when the few Soviet cosmists to have survived the gulags propelled humanity to new heights with the launch of Sputnik. In no other era were the destructive and creative urges of humanity so obviously aligned as when intercontinental ballistic missiles designed to destroy distant cities were instead pointed upwards to take humanity to new heights. And one could credibly read Golden Age science fiction about utopian space colonies while huddled in a fallout shelter, end quote. Now, uh, I disagree with the notion that there is anything inherently good or progressive about space expansionism, so I don't see eye-to-eye -eye with the author, A.M. Gitlitz, but there's a lot of very interesting information here, certainly if you're interested in the history of Argentine Trotskyism, and also a lot of fascinating background on space communism, so to speak, and the early Bolshevik scientists and visionaries, or cosmists, 
as Gitlitz calls them, who laid the first foundations of the Soviet space program and missile program, most of whom, interestingly, fell victim to the Stalin purges, as noted in that quote that I just read. One of them was Alexander Bogdanov, who actually wrote a novel entitled Red Star about a utopian communist society on Mars. Yes, really. He was purged under Lenin. He was kind of ahead of the curve in getting purged there. Uh, Not sure if his work Red Star has been translated into English. I would love to take a look at it. Then there's Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, rocket scientist and another theorist of communist space colonization who managed to avoid the purges, although um, his two most significant protégés did not. These were Sergei Korolev and Valentin Glushko, who were both purged under Stalin and imprisoned and subsequently rehabilitated and became instrumental figures in the Soviet space program. But the Posadists took this shit to a whole new level. One of Posadas' Italian protégés, Dante Minazzoli, offered his own answers to the Fermi Paradox in 1982, the year after Posadas died, in a uh, work entitled here, I'm going to mangle some Italian, Perché gli extraterrestri non prendono contatto pubblicamente? Why don't extraterrestrials make public contact? In which he cited biblical stories and the ancient alien theory of Eric von Daniken to demonstrate that these friendly aliens have been visiting us for centuries. Once we entered the industrial age and our weapons began to pose too much of a threat, they stopped coming. Only when we split the atom and prepared to enter space were they no longer able to ignore us. They now hover at a cautious distance, anxiously waiting the right moment to initiate cosmic contact. Minazzoli defined the moment as a, quote, new historical phase of a very particular order in which Earth becomes potential candidates to become members of the intergalactic community, end quote. Uh, Okay. Strikes me as kind of wacky, but uh, okay. Then there's the uh, phenomenon of um, neo-posadism. The devotees in small clusters here and there who are um, keeping posadism alive today, one of which is actually based here in New York City, the Intergalactic Workers League Posadist, whose public face is the self-dubbed Comrade Communicator. Now, I will reveal that I actually know this fellow in real life, so to speak, and he's actually a really good guy, but he always um, stays in character, so to speak, which is a little annoying. I'm convinced that there is a big element of lampoonery to his posadism, but he will never admit that. And he actually did a uh, presentation at the Left Forum here in New York City on uh, on Posadism <clears throat> and the revolutionary potential of alien contact <laughs> uh, a couple of years back. All right, uh, returning to the book, I'm a little bit irked that Gitlitz 
tries to draw the Zapatistas into the space communism tradition because of their so-called Encuentros Intergalacticos that they've been holding in their territory in Chiapas over the years. But I really think that their um, intergalactica, their intergalactic ethic, is meant to facetiously emphasize their extreme multiculturalism and embrace of diversity. I really don't think they are in the space communism lineage at all. Sorry, uh, A.M. Gitlitz. Nonetheless, a very interesting book. I want to believe Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism by A.M. Gitlitz, Pluto Press, 2020. Okay, now I want to uh, briefly discuss some older books I've read that touch on these themes, including some works of fiction, the most recent being The Three-Body Problem by Liu Shishin, the first Chinese science fiction to break through to a wide Western readership, first published in China in 2007, and more recently in English translation. And uh, the early chapters are set in the 1960s at the zenith of Maoist fanaticism and portray a secret Maoist SETI program, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, working on the assumption that the aliens must be socialist (laughs) and seeking to contact them before the capitalist West and revisionist Soviets do so as to win their support for China in the Cold War. But the actual aliens that they succeed in contacting and alerting to our existence turn out to be malevolent and um, are seeking to exterminate the human race and colonize the Earth And most of the action of the book is set in the near future, after these malevolent aliens make contact. Very strange stuff, which won Liu a Hugo Award. I um, thought they were making it into a movie, but that seems to have not happened, disappointingly. And this is, of course, within the, uh, you know, War of the Worlds paradigm, in which evil aliens threaten the Earth. But I also want to make note of the... um, reverse war of the world's paradigm, so to speak, the dystopia of human space imperialism in which evil humans threaten the less advanced beings of another planet. The most famous of these by far is James Cameron's 2009 movie Avatar, which I understand they're now making a sequel to. Uh, Some critics at the time, including myself, noted that Avatar was almost certainly inspired by Ursula K. Le Guin's 1972 novel The Word for World is Forest, clearly written in the context of the U.S. devastation of Vietnam. But the unacknowledged great-granddaddy of the reverse War of the Worlds paradigm is Out of the Silent Planet, 1939, the first entry in the space trilogy of C.S. Lewis which actually portrays a secret mission to Mars by a cabal of evil scientists with an eye to exploiting its mineral resources, and the wise but technologically primitive Martians ultimately defeating them and driving them back to Earth in humiliation. Again, very vindicating stuff, and of course, because it's C.S. Lewis, there's also a theological dimension to the story, which I won't get into right here. I will note that um, feasibility studies 
on mineral exploitation of the asteroids have actually already been drawn up by Halliburton. I'll also mention, of course, that the Ewoks in um, Return of the Jedi also echo this same theme of a primitivist resistance to the technologically superior evil alien forces. The aliens being us, of course. <laughs> aliens from the perspective of the Ewoks. <laughs> okay, then there's uh, you know, what we might call the subversive variant on the um, space communism and uh, utopian space colonization story. Again, going back to the early Bolsheviks, we should note Yevgeny Zamyatin, author of the prototypical dystopian novel We, published in 1920, which ended up in his being exiled from Russia and held to be very influential both for Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. But there is a little-noted subplot in We, in which the underground resistance in Zamyatin's totalitarian state attempts to hijack a starship that the totalitarian one-world government had been building to try to colonize the heavens, and the resistance attempt to take it over to escape from them, from the totalitarian rulers, and to colonize other worlds without them. They don't succeed, and again, it's just a subplot of the story, but interesting. Then there's one of my all-time favorite books, The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin, in which anarchists colonize the moon. It's actually set in another solar system, so it isn't our Earth and moon, but clearly stand-ins for our Earth and moon. Earth is the planet Eurus, which is dominated by oppressive capitalist nation-states, and Anaris, the moon, is a um, hard-scrabble but utopian anarchist society. And the book is about what happens when contact is first re-established between the two worlds after a gap of several generations with unanticipated repercussions in both worlds. Really brilliant stuff. If you haven't read it, I strongly suggest that you do. Now, The Dispossessed came out in 1974, but the idea seems to have been in the air, so to speak. I feel compelled to mention the 1970 rock album, Blows Against the Empire, the first and best Jefferson Starship album, really the brainchild of Paul Kantner, which was a, uh, you know, so-called concept album. I know that's a dreaded thing today, but this one kind of worked about the hippies hijacking a starship to colonize the heavens with free love, free dope, and free music. <laughs> the album was actually nominated for a Hugo and sort of won by default because the Hugo committee split on whether that format, a record album, as they were called at the time, was eligible as a dramatic presentation, and ultimately no award was given in that category that year. And then the next year, 1971, Black Sabbath released their album Master of Reality, which included the song Into the Void, also about the hippies taking off in spaceships to colonize other planets, seeking freedom from the final suicide and leaving Earth to Satan and his slaves. And finally, since we're getting around to a religious take on the whole question, thanks to Black Sabbath, 
I have to draw your attention to a little noted expository work by C.S. Lewis entitled Religion and Rocketry, 1958, in which he sets out in brief essay form the ideas he explored in his novel Out of the Silent Planet. And this is another example, also discussed in our previous two podcasts that have touched on C.S. Lewis, of how, starting from diametrically opposed philosophical positions, he, a conservative Christian moralist, and me, an atheist and anarchist, we nonetheless wind up at the same political conclusions. Now, he opens this essay with attempting to repudiate the notion that um, life on other planets would disprove the existence of God. Because why would any supreme being take any special interest in one tiny little world among umpteen gazillions across the universe? And he replies that God is infinite, so he can take a special interest in all of these umpteen gazillion worlds. And this invites speculation about God sending messiahs to other planets incarnated in non-human form, even with tusks or shells, as he writes, <clears throat> or that there may be planets inhabited by unfallen sentient races, which never needed a messiah to be redeemed, which was the theme of his novel Perilandra, by the way, second entry in the Space Trilogy. Now, all of this means nothing to me. It strikes me as mere wackiness. But again, as I find so many times with C.S. Lewis, starting from seemingly opposite assumptions from my secular humanist self, he ends up at precisely the same conclusions. So uh, I'm just going to read from the section of this essay, Religion and Rocketry, 1958, where he brings it down to brass tacks and hashes out the political position that he thinks people of goodwill must take vis-a-vis space imperialism. I will note before starting his archaic terminology, use of the word man for humanity, use of the pronoun we to mean Europeans, loaded use of the terms civilized and savage, etc. But uh, with that caveat, I read from the text, quote, We know what our race does to strangers. Man destroys or enslaves every species he can. Civilized man murders, enslaves, cheats, and corrupts savage man. Even inanimate nature, he turns into dust bowls and slag heaps. There are individuals who don't, but they are not the sort who are likely to be our pioneers in space. Our ambassador to new worlds will be the needy and greedy adventurer or the ruthless technical expert. They will do as their kind has always done. What that will be if they meet things weaker than themselves, the black man and the red man can tell. If they meet things stronger, they will be, very properly, destroyed. It is interesting to wonder how things would go if they met an unfallen race. At first, to be sure, they'd have a grand time jeering at, duping, and exploiting its innocence. But I doubt if our half-animal cunning 
would long be a match for godlike wisdom, selfless valor, and perfect unanimity. I therefore fear the practical, not the theoretical problems, which will arise if ever we meet rational creatures which are not human. Against them we shall, if we can, commit all the crimes we have already committed against creatures certainly human, but differing from us in features and pigmentation. And the starry heavens will become an object to which good men can look up only with feelings of intolerable guilt, agonized pity, and burning shame. Of course, after the first debauch of exploitation, we shall make some belated attempt to do better. We shall, perhaps, send missionaries. But can even missionaries be trusted? Gun and gospel have been horribly combined in the past. The missionary's holy desire to save souls has not always been kept quite distinct from the arrogant desire, the busybody's itch to, as he calls it, civilize the, as he calls them, natives. And I'll interject that here Lewis does put the word civilized and natives in quotation marks. Would all our missionaries recognize an unfallen race if they met it? Could they? Would they continue to press upon creatures that did not need to be saved? That plan of salvation, which God has appointed for man, would they try to teach those from whom they could better learn? I do not know. What I do know is that here and now, as our only possible practical preparation for such meeting, you and I should resolve to stand firm against all exploitation and all theological imperialism. It will not be fun. We shall be called traitors to our own race. We shall be hated of almost all men, even of some religious men, and we must not give back one single inch. We shall probably fail, but let us go down fighting on the right side. Our loyalty is due not to our species, but to God. Those who are, or can become, his sons are our real brothers, even if they have shells or tusks. It is spiritual, not biological, kinship that counts. But let us thank God that we are still very far from travel to other worlds. I have wondered before now whether the vast astronomical distances may not be God's quarantine precautions. They prevent the spiritual infection of a fallen species from spreading. And of course, we are also very far from the supposed theological problem which contact which other rational species might raise. Such species may not exist. There is not at present a shred of empirical evidence that they do. Uh, just as true today as in 1958, I will interject, <clears throat> there is nothing but what the logicians would call arguments from a priori probability, arguments that begin, it is only natural to suppose, or all analogy suggests, or is it not the height of arrogance to rule out? They make very good reading, but who except a born gambler ever risks five dollars on such grounds in ordinary life? If I remember rightly, St. Augustine raised a question about the theological position of satyrs, monopods, and other semi-human creatures, such as he wrote about in the Chronicles of Narnia. <clears throat> he decided it could wait till we knew that there were any. 
so can this. End quote. <laughs> well said. And of course, you know, I totally disagree with Lewis that um, our loyalty is due not to our species, but to God. I embrace his call to resist space imperialism, but I think that it is in the enlightened self-interest of the human race to do so. And this brings us back to what I have arrogantly called Weinberg's theorem. Again, bringing it down to brass tacks, the uh, final addendum to Weinberg's theorem is that we need to smash capitalism down here on Earth and build socialism, not with hubristic visions of colonizing the stars, but sustainably within the confines of Earth's own biosphere. All right, I'm going to uh, try to end on a little note of hope. In case you missed this one, this was from the science news website Fizz.org in October 2019. Humans will not migrate to other planets, Nobel winner says. Humans will never migrate to a planet outside of Earth's solar system because it would take far too long to get there, Swiss Nobel laureate Michel Mayor said Wednesday, which would have been October 9th, 2019. Mayor and his colleague Didier Queloz were on Tuesday awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics for their research, refining techniques for the detection of so-called exoplanets, that is, planets outside our solar system, which um, their French team did for the first time in 1995. Quote, if we are talking about exoplanets, things should be clear. We will not migrate there, Mayor told AFP near Madrid on the sidelines of a conference when asked about the possibility of humans moving to other planets. Quote, these planets are much, much too far away, even in the very optimistic case of a livable planet that is not too far, say a few dozen light years, which is not a lot. It's in the neighborhood. The time to get there is considerable, he added. <laughs> we are talking about hundreds of millions of days using the means we have available today. We must take care of our planet. It is very beautiful, and it is still absolutely livable. The 77-year-old said he felt the need to, quote, kill all the statements that say, okay, we will go to a livable planet if one day life is not possible on Earth. It's completely crazy, he added. Thank you, Michelle Mayor. Once again, very vindicating words. And thank you also. Daniel Dudney, for your vindicating words in the book, Dark Skies, Space Expansionism, Planetary Geopolitics, and the Ends of Humanity. And uh, Daniel, if uh, you are slightly scandalized that we reviewed your very scholarly book in a podcast in which we also invoked Black Sabbath, well, that's how we roll here on the Counter Vortex. The mob rules, okay? This has been Bill Weinberg. With the Counter Vortex, check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. We need your help if we're going to keep going with this project. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time if we haven't been nuked. <laughs>